Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we begin another adventure of Gangbusters, the 1920s game of mysteries, mobsters, and mayhem. The module is Death on the Docks, by Mark Akers. I'm climbing a set of wobbly steps cluttered with dirty, skinny kids and a bunch of drunken derelicts who look like they'd mug their grandmother for a dime. Not the sort of place I expected to find a client. At least not one who promised a well-paying job. But I continue nonetheless to the fourth floor, room 410. There I knock. There's no answer, but the door pushes open slightly as I rap on it. So I push it open a little further. Inside the dingy apartment, facing directly toward me under a single light, is a beautiful woman with long blonde hair and determined blue eyes. Practically poured into a slinky blue evening gown, she's leaning over a briefcase which is on a card table. She's showing off her voluptuous figure. Not that it's an unwelcome sight, but I now know she wants something. I had hoped this would just be a well-paying job, but now I see there's going to be a catch. I'm glad you could come, she says softly. My name is Catherine. I will pay you $40 per day plus expenses to find out all you can about a man named Ned Flynn. You get $200 in advance. Will you take it or will you leave it? There's a slight Russian accent hidden in her speech. That wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that she's hiding it. That and the fact that this is mostly an Irish neighborhood. This makes her all the more intriguing. But again, I was hoping for a simple payday. I don't answer her. I just stare into her eyes as I walk into the room and lean over the table. Her lips part slightly in fear, and one of her hands pulls back ready to open the briefcase. So that's where she's hiding her gun. I can see that she doesn't have it hidden in her bosom. At last, she explains, I've heard you're one of the best in town. Her accent is coming out more now. But she's still making a lame attempt to hide it. Flynn's a dangerous man, I say. And fifty more up front, I say. She hesitates as she thinks of a comeback. She doesn't come up with one, so she says, Fine. She opens the briefcase and pushes her thirty-eight aside while she pulls out a stack of cash and counts it before handing it to me. You will give me nightly reports here at 9 p.m. What kind of information are you hoping to find? Something that puts him away in prison, preferably for life, she says. What if he's a stand-up member of society, I ask. The woman takes in a breath, about to explain, but I cut her off. Don't answer that. I know his reputation. He's trying to fill the gaps left by the other syndicates that are losing power. I hear you had something to do with that she says, lifting an eyebrow. I never kiss and tell, I say. The tricky part isn't going to be finding what he does that's illegal. He owns a couple speakeasies, alcohol warehouses, and the transportation to and from them. That's out in the open. The trick will be to have something the law actually cares about. Yes, she says. And that's not easy with Mayor Big Bill Johnson letting this place be an open city to whatever big businesses want to do. Oh, how far a bribe will go, I say, taking the money she's paying me and leaving the apartment. I drop by Little Oggie's, one of Flynn's joints, to have a drink and listen in on conversations. Sometimes his boys have loose tongues and don't pay attention to who might be listening. I get nothing. I swing by his warehouse where I see trucks being loaded up to go to his and other bars. It would be a prohibition agent's dream, but they're being paid even more than their regular paycheck to do nothing directly by the mayor. Standing behind the fence, I try to get a look at any other nefarious deeds that might be taking place in those warehouses. Shakedowns? Kidnappings? No sign of anything. The only reason I took this job and think there might be something more is because people like Flynn are never satisfied with the simple things. But there doesn't seem to be anything else here. And even if I could call him out for the transportation of alcohol, I wouldn't want to stop the flow of my favorite joints. I'd rather find something that maybe puts him away. 
but leaves the businesses to some other schmuck. I show up to the cubicle of my favorite reporter. She's got her ear to the ground of general happenings around town better than anyone I know, but you'd never know it by her desk. You would think that someone who has dirt on everyone would have notes strewn across their desk and pieces of paper sticking out of the drawers, but not Miss Tidy. One might mistake it for a table display at a furniture store. Even the paper from the story she's currently writing disappears on a stack so perfectly aligned it looks like one sheet of paper. I look over her shoulder to see what it is. Tourists convinced he's being stalked by George Raft. Has George Raft ever even been to Lakefront City before? AJ is so heavily concentrated on her story that she doesn't even react until she's reached the end of her sentence. She strikes the period button and her finger springboards off of it into the air. The guy also talks about his psychic making predictions, but I'm leaving that part out, she says. Stick with the celebrities, that's what sells. You bring me something better? I need dirt on Ned Flynn. You try opening your eyes? Dirt that sticks. So mud. Something like that. Don't PIs deal with cheating husbands? Done a few of those. Got enough pictures that I could start a dirty magazine. I'll help you publish it. We'll each make more than we currently do combined. Instead, I make the divorce attorneys wealthy. So Flynn? Yeah. He's nudging his way into the dock workers' union. I don't know what he wants with them, but... AJ opens a file cabinet with her foot, then leans down and pages through the files. Each one of them is perfectly labeled as though from a team of librarians. She yanks one out with Flynn's name and opens it. Scanning with her eyes, she says, He's been contracting workers to go down there and do everything from protection to replacing laborers. Some of his boys have been implicated in beating up other workers. I'll take a wild guess that none of those have been investigated. Not even the murder that took place two days ago. She shows me a clipping from a couple days prior whose headline reads, Death on the Docks. It tells about the murder of Jim Molloy, one of the moral leaders of the union. A respected dock worker who had fought tirelessly for safer conditions and shorter work weeks. He had warned his fellow employees about the dangers of someone like Flynn muscling his way in. Only a couple days later, he was dead, shot execution style on the pier where he worked. Okay, I might find something here, I say. What kind of a client wants to take on Flynn, she asks. Clients are private, I say. But she gives me that look, so I say, If you want to come with me down to the docks, you can learn what I learn. She's already grabbing her purse and her camera, and she stands, ready to go. The docks are always a gloomy place in both spirit and appearance. The two of us wander the area a little bit before deciding to split up. There were two groups we wanted to hear from, the union leadership and the laborers. She's taking the former, I'm taking the latter. I meander among the laborers strolling along the dock. I almost look forlorn enough to fit in with them. No one who's here grew up dreaming to be a dock worker. My head is low, but my eyes take peeks around. My ears are open to conversations. I'm catching nothing and I linger too long. So I'm confronted by a pair of workers on their break. You belong here, buddy? One of them asks. Looking for work, I grunt. The second one scoffs. I ask him what's so funny. You picked a hell of a time to look for work at the docks, he says. Why's that? Ona's just got their way. Walking conditions were already terrible. And now they own the Union, too. Now we all just gotta suck it up, the first one says. Or else you get fired, I ask. Mar like a firing squad, the first one says, and the second one scoffs. They threaten you? Muscle came in, second one says. Made us do things their way. Probably hired by the owners. Even made us vote for a union leader we don't want. Killed someone that was standing up to them just two days ago. Yeah, but Leon will fix it. I'm about to ask who Leon is, but we're interrupted by a goon who seemed to come out of nowhere. 
He's got a baseball bat dangling from one hand, and his expression says that he's ready to use it. All right, I'll use. Get back to work. One of the dock workers rolls his eyes toward me as if to say, See what I mean? I start to blend in with them and start working. It may give more insight into what's going on, but the thug sees that I don't belong and hustles me away. I soak in as much visual information as I can while I walk off. I only spot one thing that might be relevant. A man who seems to be the center of attention among several others who are crowded around him. He wears a short cropped beard that's a little longer at the end, and an air of confidence that the others clearly crave. I don't have time to stop, so I head back to the car and wait. I wait just long enough to become concerned, but she gets to the car right at that point. She doesn't look right at me. She's still processing what she heard. It's not that I'm trying to process information, she tells me. I'm trying to figure out if any of it was anything but bullshit. Who was he? I ask. Guy named Ben Whittier. He's clearly someone's puppet. He was making a lot of excuses for things I didn't even ask him about. So he was nervous, I speculate. No, defensive. Overconfident. Condescending, though I get that from a lot of men. He was insisting that the union is being much more well handled now. What was interesting was he talked about that as if someone other than himself was in charge. We go to eat at the Big Drink Cafe, a small place just off the wharf. There I can get a window seat to keep an eye on things while we talk. There isn't much more to tell about what we discovered. Neither of us got that much. But we speculate on possibilities. Flynn had obviously been brought in by the owners of the shipping interest to break up the union. The goons were his guys. They killed the most vocal critic of their operations as a show of intimidation to make sure they voted for Flynn's puppet, who's now doing his bidding. Now we know who was behind hiring me, and what Flynn was doing that made them so angry. But making any of it stick to him is still beyond our reach. We are going to need some way to get a paper trail. AJ suggests we take a look at Flynn's mansion, see if that draws any inspiration. I know what she's suggesting. She's aware that I have my ways of sneaking into a property to find what I need. She just doesn't want to say it outright. Streams of light streak down the streets from one direction like white spikes and the sky grows orange as the sun sets in the west. It makes it a little harder to drive, but easier to notice the Ford Coupe that's following us. It makes one too many turns in our same direction. I make a sudden left to test my theory and they make the same left. I begin to speed up and explain why to AJ. She says that she sees the car out of her side view mirror as well. I make a sudden turn into an alley and weave around several dumpsters before making the sharp turn that leads out to another street again. Our pursuer gets slowed by the debris in the alley and doesn't quite make the turn well enough. I smile with satisfaction as we get back into the main street and we continue on. We haven't lost him, AJ says. I look into my rear view and say, Of course we have. The car isn't anywhere to be seen. It's two cars back, the sedan, she says, pointing it out to me. I take a couple more turns. It follows. She's right. We had two pursuers. And judging by the difference in value of the two cars, it would seem by two different sources. She tells me that this car didn't follow us in the alley, but instead took the road and got to our rear when we came out of it. I take a couple more sudden turns, but it calmly stays with me, even losing sight of me once, but relentlessly finding me again. I lose my patience and decide a different approach. I pull over and stop suddenly. AJ looks at me wide-eyed. I get out with one hand in my jacket pocket. The sedan drives by. I don't get a great look at the two occupants, though I notice that they both look at me as they slowly pass, like a shark who's leaving his meal for another time. I try not to look like bait. When I get back in, we both sit for a moment, trying to think of what our next move should be. We don't want anyone seeing us drive up to Flynn's place, and who knew when they would catch our tail again? 
Going back to either of our homes or offices would surely cause that. So we decide to take a drive out to the suburbs, just wander around the middle-class parts of town. It's harder to tail someone out here as there's not so much traffic to hide in. We even stop once and take a little walk around, watching for anyone driving suspiciously. At last we get back in and drive to our destination. It's nearly 9 o'clock. As should be expected, Flynn lives in a fancy mansion in one of the more affluent areas where the space between houses is greater and split by hedgerows and other greenery. The yard looks like a black sea at night, what little I can get a glimpse of beyond the gate. His house is lit up, though, and I can make out a guard at the front door. That would mean there's probably more inside. This is going to be a hard nut to crack, and I tell AJ that I'm not likely to be able to do it with any certainty. What other options have you got to satisfy your client? She asks. I think for a moment. Men like Flynn typically hide their crimes through their hired goons who never talk to the police, let alone a P.I., I tell AJ, I'll probably need to go undercover at the dock before I can finish my sentence. Bright headlights pull up behind us and we hear tires squealing. We both instinctively duck down, and the vehicle passes us. It's a truck, the kind used for hauling supplies from the dock. The back door slides open and two men throw out a body, which rolls to a stop at the gate. The back of the truck slams shut, and it squeals away. I throw the car in gear, but AJ opens her door. What are you doing? I shout. You follow them. I'm going to get some stuff here. She slams the door and rushes for the cover of some neighboring bushes. I don't ask any questions. I speed off after the truck. The roads in these fancy areas curve and twist. They're narrow, so the parked cars on each side are a problem. The truck is taking out side mirrors and scraping doors. It spotted me chasing, and it's speeding to get away. We cross a major street without stopping. Luckily, the traffic is lighter at this hour. We pass through a commercial district where it isn't so light, and the truck has to slow down to plow through crowds. It chooses the former, thank God. I'm able to get closer. The street lamps are bright enough now that I'm able to see the license plate. I recite the numbers and letters out loud. The back of the truck slides open and two men with Tommy guns stand there. I swerve onto the sidewalk just as they open fire. The pedestrians scatter and the machine gun fire rattles the parked car I hid behind with bullets. I can see the roof of the truck as it disappears down the street. I let it. Instead, I jump out of the car. One of the women who I almost hit is getting up. Do you have a pen? I ask her. What? She asks with disgust. A pen, I repeat. In your purse. You almost hit me, you creep! I don't have time. My memory's accurate, but can get distracted with new facts and I become uncertain of them. So I grab her purse and look through it. Hey! She shouts and she begins hitting me. Others begin to crowd around. A couple guys shouting at me. Ready to beat me up as a thief. The only reason they haven't come at me yet is probably because of the gunfire of which I might have been a part. I ignore all of them, whispering the license plate number over and over. I find her lipstick and I write the number on the hood of my car. I then toss the lipstick and purse back to the woman and jump in my car, and I pull out and speed away in the opposite direction I had been going. AJ maneuvered herself into the neighbor's yard, hiding at the base of one of the trunks of a bush. There she crouched, still and silent, just within earshot of anyone who approached. She peered at the body. It looked familiar. Then she got just enough of a look at the bloody face. It was Ben Whittier, the union leader. This has been a presentation of RPG Storytime Gangbusters, a playthrough of Death on the Docks by Mark Akers. Tune in next time to learn what happens next. Subscribe to the channel to hear more tales of RPG games, or check out our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. We hope you enjoyed it, and happy gaming, everybody.